Psalm 138. This is a psalm of David. I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. I have a sermon to you today. Uh, if you know what this pictures, it's something that uh, is absolutely marvelous. It's from the Old Testament. Uh, the uh, explanation of it is found in the New Testament, and in particular in the Gospels. Um, it's marvelous. I, I know that these sermons are detailed, but God is trying to wake us up to the magnificence of who Jesus Christ is, even in the Old Testament. So this is Exodus 26, verses 31 through 37, and it is entitled, The Veil and the Screen, Points of Access. Verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table across the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. There are several points of separation between the outside of the White House of the United States of America and the spot where the president sits. If one wants to get in there, they have to go through a guarded fence. After that, there are security checks. Continuing along, there are monitoring systems, guarded halls, and secured doors. For one to actually get to him, there are many barriers to go through, and each is designed specifically for the purpose of only allowing a very limited few to gain that access. Now, I'm not sure why anyone would want to gain access into the White House today with the president that we have, but that's besides the point. If you did want to, it would not be easy. If this is so for an earthly president in charge of a single country in a fallen world, how much more secure do you think that the passage to the heavenly throne room must be? Think about it. And yet, this is the place that every single human soul desires the most. And it is the place that is open to any and to all if only the proper access is received. Today's passage gives us details into the veil which separates the holy place from the most holy place and the details for the screen covering for the tent itself. Each of these is a separation of some sort 
And a separation implies that there is a difference between what is on the inside and what is on the outside. Further, as there are two separations noted in sequence, it implies that the separation between the two is one of degrees. The instructions for the tabernacle and the tent go from the innermost section to the outermost section. What was detailed for the most holy place preceded that which was detailed for the holy place. The curtains for the tabernacle were detailed before the covering of the tent, which went over it. And the details for the veil come prior to the details for the screen. The separations and how they are detailed are given to teach us lessons about the holiness of God, as well as the process of redemption, which he has laid out for us. People at a funeral always talk about the guy in the box going to heaven, don't they? You hear it all the time. He's in a better place now. But when they mention the things that the person did to merit such an honor, how often do they not square up with what the Bible speaks of? I tell you, I've been to a million funerals in my life, and every single one of them, that person is in a better place, or he's singing with the angels, or whatever. But without the proper credentials, you will not be making it there. It is so common for people to overlook what the Bible teaches about the process. Our verses today will shed light on that process, and they confirm the words of Jesus quite well. This is from John 14, verses 3 through 6, and it's our text verse for the day. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where you go, you know. Oh, and I'm sorry. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a lot of marvelous new information in today's verses, but there will also be some repetition in them as well, things seen and explained in previous sermons. However, a theme is being developed, and so repeating the symbolism of the things that we come across is intended to have us again contemplate the prophetic meaning behind each thing. Don't worry if you feel you've heard some of this before. If you've listened to these sermons, you have. But it is a good reminder of all that God is trying to show us. The Lord is instructing Moses, and a place where he will dwell is to be the final result. And so the details are meticulously given. Nothing is left to chance because all of it, every single detail of it points in picture to what he will later do in and through Jesus Christ. Yes, it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the veil. It's verses 31 through 35. Verse 31, you shall make a veil. We now come to the veil which will hang before the ark of the testimony and which will divide the holy of holies from the holy place. The veil in Hebrew is paroket. This is the first of 25 times it's going to be mentioned in the Bible. With but one exception, every instance will be in Exodus through Numbers and will be speaking of the veil of the tabernacle. However, it will be seen one more time in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 14, when speaking of the veil that Solomon made for the temple in Jerusalem. The word paroket means veil. It comes from the word perek, which means cruelty or rigor. That then comes from an unused root, meaning to break apart or to fracture. In this, we can see where cruelty or rigor then comes into play. There is an implied division, which is made explicit in the hanging of the veil, 
On one side, there is one state of existence, and on the other, there is another state. If you stretch your mind now as we evaluate the symbolism of what this veil is made of, then you might grasp what this parroquet pictures and is picturing. Verse 31 continues, woven of blue. Tekelet, literally, blue. The word tekelet is believed to come from the word shechelet, the cerulean muscle. In other words, the color which is obtained from it or that is dyed with it. Blue in the Bible is associated with the law, especially in the keeping of the law. This is seen explicitly in Numbers chapter 15 with these words. Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry with which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Verse 31 continues, purple. They are gaman, literally, and purple. It is purple or blue-red. The color in the Bible, like many other cultures, is one of royalty or that which pertains to or belongs to a king. As it is a mixture of blue and red, in meaning it is thus a combination of what those two colors mean. The law for blue and war, blood, and or judgment for red. Hence, a royal color because these things pertain to and belong to the authority and dominion of a king. Verse 31 continues, and scarlet thread, vetolaat shani, literally, and from worms red. The words here are used to describe the color. The first is tola. This is actually a worm known as the crimson grub. However, it is only used in this manner concerning the color from it and cloths that are dyed with it. The second word is shani. It means scarlet. Taken together, they are translated as scarlet, but implying the scarlet which comes from the tola or the grub worm. The double word implies that to strike this color, the wool or cloth was to be twice dipped. The scarlet or red in the Bible pictures and symbolizes war, blood, and or judgment. About this particular type of worm, and this is most astonishing, in Hebrew, the tola worm, Henry Morris writes the following. When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, think of Jesus Christ as I'm reading this, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives of Christ dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons unto glory. He died for us that we might live through him. In one way or another, it is all about Christ. Every word points to the majesty of a bruised and crushed servant, a glorious Savior. As you can see, each of these colors amazingly pictures his work. Verse 31 continues, And fine woven linen, veshesh mashazar, literally, and linen finely twisted. The shesh is fine linen. It was first mentioned when Joseph, who himself was a marvelous picture of Christ, was clothed in fine linen after interpreting Pharaoh's prayers and being elevated to his high position in the land. The symbolism of this shesh 
or fine linen is explicitly explained in the book of Revelation. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come and his bride has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she would be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Most versions say something like the righteous acts of the saints. However, this is incorrect. This is not speaking about what we do, but what about Christ has done. He is the righteousness of the saints, and we are given a picture of it here in this veil. His righteousness, based on his purity, is what this veil is comprised of. The shazar, or the twisting of the linen, is a picture of each of the previous attributes being woven into the very fabric of Christ. He embodies the law, justice, righteousness, and the right to judge and make war and to shed blood, both that of others and of his own. These things are all finely woven into his very nature, just as they were finely twisted into the linen. Also, the twisting can be further explained in his strength, courage, and steadfastness. As it says in Ecclesiastes, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Verse 31 continues, it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. On the veil and into the linen itself are to be woven cherovim, or cherubs. The word for artistic design is chashav. This means to think about or to consider. In other words, there is to be care and careful consideration in the making of these cherubs. Thus, the New King James Version uses a word which describes that quite well. They say artistic. As noted in a previous sermon, the King James Version incorrectly translates this word cherubim as cherubims. The I-M at the end of cherub is the Hebrew plural marker. It's just like our S in English. Therefore, it is either cherubs or cherubim, but not cherubims. Cherubim are a select class of angels, which, among other things, are near to God. They have great power, and they act as guards. As they are guards of the tree of life, they are the ones who can point man to the way of accessing the right to that tree. The veil, then, is being constructed and placed for a reason. It symbolically guards access to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man and their exile from Eden, cherubs were placed strategically and with purpose. Here's what it says. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you can see that this is picturing guarding of access back to the tree of life. As the tabernacle faces east, the symbolic guarding by these cherubs is intended to show us several things. First, it is a picture of the way to access paradise lost once again. Secondly, that which is inside is guarded and access is therefore restricted. Thirdly, if something is guarded, it means that access is possible. If there is a lock on a safe, it is meant to guard access to the safe. But the safe can be opened and access can be obtained with the right key or combination. The safe hasn't been welded shut permanently. Instead, it merely requires the proper validation for access and so forth. The guarding of the cherubs implies that what is inside being guarded is that proper validation, if you will. It is what provides access. Verse 32, you shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Like the rest of the furniture and the structure of the tabernacle and the tent, the wood was to be of acacia or shittim wood. 
As before, it symbolized Christ's human nature. These pillars were to be overlaid with gold. And like before, this symbolizes his divine nature. There were to be four pillars for the hanging of this veil. Again, the meaning of the number four is important to recall. So I'm going to read you E.W. Bullinger's assessment of it. Now the number four is made up of three and one, and it denotes therefore and marks that which follows the revelation of God in the Trinity, namely his creative works. He is known by the things that are seen. Hence, the written revelation commences with the words, in the beginning God created. Creation is therefore the next thing, the fourth thing, and the number four always has reference to all that is created. It is emphatically the number of creation, of man in his relation to the world as created. It is the number of things that have a beginning, of things that are made, of material things and matter itself. It is the number of material completeness. Hence, it is the world number, and especially the city number. These four pillars holding up the veil are then representative of the final point between the things of this world and the heavenly things behind the veil. This is explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews as picturing the work of Jesus Christ. First, we are told that this veil was a picture for the time when access to God was not yet available. Here's what he says in Hebrews 9. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Next, we are told that in his work, Christ went from the earthly to the heavenly in order to complete this process of redemption. Here's what it says in Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The four pillars thus represent the transition from the sphere of creation to the sphere of the heavenly. This transition is made possible by the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is that point of transition between the two spheres. He is the infinite united with the finite. He is the divine united to the creation. Verse 32, the hooks shall be gold. A new word is now introduced for hooks. It is the word vav. It's only going to be used 13 times in the Bible and all are in Exodus and all of them are referring to hooks for hanging on pillars. As these are the only times that they're mentioned and they're all in the same context, it's not entirely sure what they are. The Greek translation of the Old Testament calls them capitals, as if they're capitals on a pillar. One translation calls them heads, one pegs, and the rest all say hooks. To get a clue as to what they are, we can look at what the vav is. It is the sixth letter of the Hebrew aleph bet, and it has the meaning of ad, secure, and hook. A vav, whether in ancient writing or in modern Hebrew, has the appearance of a peg or a hook of some sort. The vav as a letter is used in Hebrew to serve as a connector to words and members within a sentence, and even the sentences of a discourse. Thus it draws them together. Therefore, hook or peg is the obvious and preferred meaning. These would probably have been attached to the poles, and the veil would be hung from them. As the vav is also the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, there must be a symbolic meaning attached to these as well. The number six is the number of man. Thus, these gold hooks are a picture of the divine man. It pictures Christ, the divine man who is the hook or the transition between the two realms, the finite and the infinite. Just as the Vav is a connector of words and members within a sentence, 
Christ is the connector between the divine and the earthly. Thus, this is a reference to his incarnation. He is the God-man. As there are four of them, we can see then the connection to the four Gospels which speak of the man who is divine. The Gospels are what speak of him and his work, and they are what testify to his fulfillment of the law, which again can gain access or allow us through the veil. The gold hooks thus again speak of the work of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are what connect the Old Testament to the New. They hook them together in a unified whole. However, there is another point to consider. The four hooks, each a vav or a six, taken together thus equal the number 24. And there is, according to Bollinger, a set meaning for the number 24. Here's what he says. It is the number associated with the heavenly government and worship of which the earthly form in Israel was only a copy. Again, this is a perfect matching to what Hebrews 8.5 tells us concerning the tabernacle being a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Verse 32 continues, Upon four sockets of silver, like the sockets for the tabernacle boards, there are four sockets for these four pillars, and they are likewise silver. Silver, as explained before, pictures redemption. Thus, in the work of Christ as the redeemer of creation, the number four is what is pictured. Combined with the previous 96 sockets that we saw in a sermon about two weeks ago, there are now exactly 100 sockets of silver in this tabernacle. Verse 33, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. This translation is incorrect. The word is tachat, under, not from. The veil is not hanging from the clasps. Rather, it is hung upon the vavahem, or the hooks of the previous verse. But its placement is under the clasps, which were mentioned in Exodus 26, verse 6, which united the curtains into one single hole. This is the point where the two chambers were divided. It was a distance of 5 times 4, or 20 cubits from the front, and 10 cubits from the back. By hanging the veil at this point, it thus makes the back room, the most holy place, a perfect cube of 10 by 10 by 10. There is intent and there is purpose here. The number 10 signifies the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. Thus, the cubed back room has been divinely ordered in all ways. In this room is found a picture of the complete cycle of the redemption of man. This is realized in the following words. Verse 33 continues, Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there. The veil at this specific point in the tabernacle and under the curtains is the partition behind which the ark of the testimony is to be brought. It is into this spot, marking out the perfection of divine order, which is, verse 33 continues, behind the veil. The veil of which every detail points to Christ is to be the dividing marker for the Ark of the Testimony. Upon it are the cherubs which are pointing eastward. Behind the veil, there is paradise restored. Before the veil, guarded access. The implication is that there is a fracture between the two. There is cruelty and there is rigor anticipating entry into a place of delight. Verse 33 continues, The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. The first time that the word Kodesh, or holy, was used in the Bible was in Exodus 3, verse 5, when Moses was told to take off his sandals as he was standing on holy ground. Since then, it has been used six more times in various ways. Now, 
The eighth time it is used is when speaking of the holy place or the HaKodesh. The number eight is that of superabundance and new beginnings. The implements in the holy place are those which point to the new beginnings in Christ. After that, the ninth and the tenth use of this word are found in this verse as well when speaking of Kodesh HaKodeshim or the holy of holies. Thus, there is another stamp of the perfection of divine order in the tenth use of the word Kodesh or most holy in the Bible. And you wonder why I know this? It's because I sit and I count every single word and how many times it's occurred in the Bible because I want to know what's on God's mind. And it's marvelous what comes out of these things. It is astonishing. In this place, nothing is wanting. The number and order are perfect. The whole cycle is complete. It is the most marvelous thing to consider how God has structured even the cycle of the use of words in the Bible to show us spiritual truths. The symbolism of this veil its meaning is explicitly given in the book of Hebrews. Here's what it says. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The veil is said to be a picture of the flesh of Jesus Christ, his body. Only through that can access to God be restored. Remember I was talking about the guy in the coffin at the beginning of the sermon? If he ain't going through Jesus, he ain't going to where they say he's gone to. That's all there is to it, according to the Bible, even in pictures from the Old Testament. And this is exactly what the Bible says occurred on a Friday, 11 April, A.D. 32. The record of Luke will suffice for our edification and to stir up our gratitude to God who gave the life of his son for us. Luke says this, Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two, access restored. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The barrier to Eden was removed. That paradise which was lost was restored and intimate fellowship between God and man which had ended at the coming of our sin was again made possible through the tearing of the veil which is the body of Jesus Christ. The debt was paid, the anger was poured out and propitiation was realized through his death. Behold, he makes all things new. Verse 34, You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy if Christ's body is the veil, then the mercy seat is a picture of where Christ's body was lain. The mercy seat is where the blood evidenced the death of the animal in the Old Testament. It is where the blood evidenced the death of Christ in the New. There between the cherubs on the mercy seat, propitiation was found. This is seen in John's Gospel, chapter, uh, chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Just as the animal's blood was given as a temporary propitiation for the sins of Israel year by year on the Day of Atonement, so Christ's blood was given as a one-time permanent propitiation for our sins on what the Day of Atonement only looked forward to. This is again explained in Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the peering of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The placing of the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony is to show that Christ had fulfilled the law. Under his blood, meaning his death, the law was thus annulled. It is the shedding of his blood which sealed the fulfillment of the old covenant and it is what brought in the new covenant. Access for those who believe is unconditionally granted. For those who don't, they remain outside the veil and cut off from the promises which are found in Christ and in him alone. However, there is still something that's calling to them. Verse 35, you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and you should put the table on the north side. Outside of the Holy of Holies is where the table, meaning the table of showbread, was to be placed. The table was explained previously, but in short, the bread pictures Christ, the bread of life. However, that life can only be imparted through his death. Thus, the table of showbread is placed outside of the Holy of Holies on the east side of the veil. Until he died, we could not obtain access to God through him. The lampstand is also outside the veil. It was also explained in great detail, but in short, it is what illuminates the work of Christ for us. It is what shows us the way into what would otherwise be a very darkened place. It is placed nochach, or opposite the table of showbread, on the south side of the tabernacle. In placing it to the south, it would thus illuminate the north, where the table was placed. The work of Christ the Lord, our bread of life, is highlighted and illuminated for us to know that he is the one who alone can gain access for us once again into paradise restored. Only through the partaking of his life can we become partakers of what his life offers. And in partaking of it, we must also partake of his death. It is all pictured in these implements, which are being so meticulously described one by one and in logical order. All things new, this is how it shall be. One step at a time, and it will come out as I have planned. A return to paradise will happen. Just you wait and see. Yes, I am leading you back to that delightful land. All things new, it is a promise I made long ago. And the journey has been progressing steadily through the years. As the plan has unfolded, there, as there has been tribulation, trial, and woe. And yes, through it all, there have been many shed tears. <laughs> But these things had to come about, you will someday understand. Without the trials, heaven could never seem so sweet. All things new, marvelous things are coming from my open hand, when once again and forever, in a loving bond, we shall meet. Our second thought today is the screen. It's verses 36 and 37. Verse 36, you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle. The translation is incorrect. This is not a door for the tabernacle or Mishkan. Rather, it is a door for the tent or Ohel. This is the access point to the tent which covers the tabernacle here called a screen. It is now a new item which is directed to be fashioned. It is a masach. 
This word is used 25 times, mostly in Exodus and Numbers, to describe this item right here. However, it is used three other times in 2 Samuel, Psalm 105, and in Isaiah chapter 22. It is variously translated as a screen, a hanging, a covering, etc. In Isaiah, the word is translated as defense. Thus, we can get the idea that this is what keeps something out. It covers and therefore impedes access. This screen is said to be made specifically for the door of the tent. Just as access was restricted to the Holy of Holies, so it is restricted to the tabernacle and the holy place itself. Nobody outside would be able to look in beyond the door. It pictures the life of Christ, hidden from the eyes of those before his coming. He was veiled in the Old Testament scriptures. They knew a Messiah was coming, but they could not gaze upon what he would be like. All they would see would be the dull-looking coverings of the tent and this veil of separation with its colors and its designs. Beyond that, they couldn't imagine the majestic beauty which lay just beyond and behind and under them. Likewise, the people of Israel could never have imagined the majesty which lay ahead of them as they awaited the one who would restore all things. The light was already shining. The bread was already laid out. The veil was already hanging in anticipation and the ark lay resting in its perfect cube. But none of this was known to them except in words which failed to describe the marvel they were separated from. The span of time yet future and even the dullness of the eyes of those who beheld the person who finally arrived obscured their perception of the infinite value of Jesus Christ. Only if the coverings were removed could the people clearly see what was hidden. And only when the veil is lifted in Christ can someone look at the words of the Old Testament and understand what they are actually saying. Otherwise, only darkness and shadows are what is seen. Verse 36 continues, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. Like the curtains in the veil, the colors are chosen to picture Christ in all ways. These carry the same signification as they did in both of the other weavings. However, there is a difference to be noted in the making of this one. Verse 36 continues, made by a weaver, ma'ase rokem, worked embroiderer. The word rakam is a verb which means to variegate color. Thus, it is translated variously as an embroiderer, a weaver, or with needlework. It is used only nine times in the Bible, and eight of them are in Exodus and referring to this work on the tabernacle. The other time that it's used, which is in Psalm 139, it gives us a better hint as to how to interpret it. Here's from Psalm 139, verses 14 and uh, 15. I will praise you, for I am fearful, fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought, that word right there, skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. The weaver would skillfully and meticulously fashion this screen according to the instructions of God through Moses. It is, again, a picture of Christ. The colors signify his roles, as outlined earlier, but as it comprises the one and only door of the tent leading to the tabernacle, it shows that the means of coming further is exclusive. No person could come in another way. As the inner chambers picture Christ's life and work, the New Testament fulfillment of this door is found in the words of John chapter 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Heaven's pastures are available, but only through one access point. The door is Christ. But the fact that Christ is there 
is a point of grace all by itself. Verse 37, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Unlike the veil, which was hung from four pillars, for this door, there will be five of them. They are of the same material as the others, acacia or shittim wood overlaid with gold. And the materials carry the same signification once again, the divine human natures of Christ. But this time, there were five. And so once again, we need to go to Bollinger and determine the meaning of the number five. He says five is four plus one. We have hitherto had the three persons of the Godhead and their manifestation in creation. Now we have a further revelation of a people called out from mankind, redeemed and saved, to walk with God from earth to heaven. Hence, redemption follows creation. Inasmuch as in consequence of the fall of man, creation came under the curse and was made subject to vanity, therefore man and creation must be redeemed. Thus we have one, Father, two, Son, three, Spirit, four, creation, five, redemption. These are the five great mysteries, and five is the number, therefore, of grace. As a testament to what lay inside, behind the screen, five pillars indicating grace held it up. Every single detail of the tent and the tabernacle, including all that is inside of it, all of it, is of grace. There were five bars on all three sides. We saw that two weeks ago, right? Grace. And there are five pillars on this side. Grace. It is all about God's grace in Christ. The Lord could have destroyed Adam. He allowed him to live. Grace. He could have wiped out the whole world, but it says Noah found grace in his sight. He could have left Abraham and Ur worshiping the gods of wood and stone, but by grace he called him out. Each step of the way, grace was bestowed. The tabernacle is a picture. It was never intended to be a permanent residence nor a permanent point of meeting. Instead, it was simply a picture of the grace to come. The doorway is a testimony to the grace of God in Christ. Five pillars suspended the screen. Grace established and upheld the work of Christ. They are, in essence, the grace of God in Christ. Verse 37 continues, and their hooks shall be gold. Like the hooks of the veil, these are to be of solid gold as well. In these five vavahem, or hooks, is a picture similar to the four which held the veil. Those four represented the four gospels. However, these five would represent all five of the New Testament books of history, the gospels plus Acts. As the four gospels are a witness to the work of Christ in connecting the Old Testament with the New, Adding Acts to them gives us a picture of the new life to be found in Christ once inside the screen. They are what tie together the work of Christ and the understanding of that work. The tabernacle and the tent are working outwards from the ark, not the other way around. Each step outward means a greater need is realized in order to gain access. And again, there is a picture in the numbers. There are five hooks or vavs. Each vav is the number six. Therefore, 5 times 6 equals 30. Bollinger explains the number. 30 being 3 times 10 denotes in a higher degree the perfection of divine order as marking the right moment. In other words, the moment of grace is the right moment. Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians. He says, we then as workers together with him are also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. 
Behold, now is the day of salvation. Each item that is described by God for Moses to construct is simply filled with information relative to the redemptive process of man. Verse 37 finishes with these words, And you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Unlike the sockets for the pillars which held up the veil, these are not silver. Instead, they are bronze. The difference is that these sockets do not signify redemption, as it were. Rather, they signify judgment. The word for bronze is nechoshet. This word refers to copper and its alloys. The metals, whether copper, bronze, or brass, get their color from the copper, which along with gold is a metal which possesses a natural color other than silver. The color of bronze symbolizes judgment in the Bible. This judgment can be negative, such as bronze fetters being worn by those who have been sentenced for a crime, or in a pictorial judgment, such as in Deuteronomy, where the punishment for disobeying the Lord is described as the heavens being bronze. It is a picture of rainless skies, heat, and anguish. However, the judgment can also be one of purification and justification. This is seen throughout the Bible as well. In this bronze, there would be both significations. The first is for those who remain outside of the tent. They can only anticipate negative divine judgment for their sins. However, for those who receive the grace of God in Christ, they can expect God's positive divine judgment of their sins through Christ's work. The picture is there, and it calls out from the pillars awaiting any who would receive God's mercy and find his grace. And so, as we close today, having looked into what I think are astonishing pictures of Christ to come, intangible, actual implements constructed by Moses at the instruction of the Lord, we need to evaluate our own position in relation to him. Have we received judgment on our sins pictured here? Have we passed through the door, which is Christ? Have we come to the veil and received the gift of his torn body, passing through it into the heavenly realm and restored access to God? If you haven't, then only sorrowful judgment remains. Please, please receive the work of Jesus Christ. His body was torn for you. The veil was rent asunder in order to restore you once again to full and complete fellowship with God. Call on Jesus. Be reconciled to God through his shed blood, and you too will be returned to the land of delight that was lost so long ago. Call on Christ today. I want to give you just a real quick picture to tie it together for you so that you can understand what Christ did and you can call out to him and say, I want that. Eden was where we were first uh, placed. We sinned against God and we were cast east of Eden. That's the place of exile. It's the place of punishment. It's the place of separation from God. And then God gave them a picture of this tavern in this tabernacle. And he faced it east. It's, I'm sorry, west. The west is this end. East is that end. That's where you come. You're heading west once again. You're heading back to Eden. And there on the veil or the cherubim, it's protecting just like the cherubim were protecting the Garden of Eden. You can't come in here unless you have the proper access. And then as another picture of what God expected from us, he used Israel as a people in the same type of picture. He put them in the land of Israel. And Jerusalem is the spot where he said, I will dwell. And there in Jerusalem, if you abide with me, you will fellowship with me. But if you don't, you'll be cast out of this land. And where were they cast? East to Babylon. They were cast as a picture of what happened to Adam will happen to man once again. And it's all pictured in this tabernacle. And then Christ came and he said, I can lead you back west. I can take you to the place of restoration through the cherubim, which is my body, the veil, and I will give you that peace with God once again. 
But the only way that you can do it, there is nothing you can do. You can't pay for it. Everything belongs to God. There's no gold you can give him. There's no good works you can give him because you already have the sin in your life. You just have to simply say, I believe that Jesus Christ is capable of doing this thing. It's so simple that it's actually difficult. People can't understand that the simplicity is all they need and they go about their lives seeking another means of righteousness before God and God rejects it. I am the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to the Father but through me. So sorry for the guy in the coffin who didn't call on Jesus Christ. He will never enter God's paradise. And today you have a choice to do so by mere faith. Please call on Jesus Christ today. Next week is Exodus 27, 1 through 8. A place for propitiation when we falter. It's entitled the brazen altar. And that'll be our 74th Exodus sermon. And as I say to you each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him. And he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And he'll get you through that parroquet and he'll get you back to Eden where you'll fellowship with God for all eternity. He can do it. He can part that, that divide. He is the God-man. Our poem today is called The Veil and the Screen. You shall make a veil of pr blue, purple, and scarlet thread you will entwine and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with cherubim of an artistic design. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. It shall be constructed just as to you I have told. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony too. In there behind the veil, the veil shall be a divider for you. Between the holy place and the most holy, this is where the veil is intended to be. You shall put the mercy seat, so shall it be, upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the veil out, the table outside the veil, and the lampstand across from the table you see, on the side of the tabernacle toward the south, and you shall put the table on the north side, so shall it be. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, these three, and fine woven linen made by a weaver, as how is it intended to be. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Let these instructions be clearly understood. Their hooks shall be gold, now you shall cast, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now these instructions you have been told. The details are so fine. Each tells a marvelous story of the coming of Christ and the things that he will do. Every bit of it tells of his splendid glory. He, the Holy One who is ever faithful and true, found in him is grace and life, found in him is God's mercy too. The heavy burdens we have carried are lifted off through the Lord. Great and marvelous things he has done for me and you, and a record of them is kept for us in his sacred word. O oh God, how you are so very good to us. How we rejoice in the things that you have done. Through your marvelous grace, you have sent Jesus. And through his shed blood, our victory is won. For this, O God, we shall ever sing your praise for ages upon ages, yes, even for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of eternal life, which comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And thank you that the New Testament, it's not hidden from us what these things picture. It's all revealed that the moment that he died on the cross and gave his spirit back to you, the veil was torn. Access is restored. The law is complete. We're free from that burden and that bondage, and we're given grace, the grace of God. 
in him. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we have a uh, prostate cancer that I wasn't aware of. And I'd like to pray for that right now for uh, Craig and his uh, continued healing. Something I, I, I just am so sorry I didn't know that earlier, but I, I pray that that will be something that you will put your hand upon and divinely take care of him there. And we also have um, uh, Darla's husband, Mark, who is traveling back from South Carolina in an airplane today. And uh, as he's the pilot, we would pray that his uh, abilities would be skillful and that his uh, uh, joy would be complete as his wheels land safely on the uh, runway. And Lord, you know that uh, we have many other prayer requests that were lifted up to you at the beginning of this service. People that attend the service online that we mentioned and many people in this church right now that are suffering with all kinds of uh, disabilities and afflictions and uh, uh, a special prayer for Cindy who has got to be kept immobile now for a while because of a detached retina. And uh, that's got to be just tough on anybody to just stay without moving. So we'd pray for that. And finally, a quick prayer once again for Janice Alley. It is Mother's Day, and we would pray that uh, your hand would be upon her as she's going to her final uh, breaths at the hospice, that they would be comfortable, and that uh, Tom and Morgan would be uh, uh, blessed by the presence of the wife and mother that is and that will soon be in your presence. Lord, uh, we commit the Lord's table to you. We ask that you uh, bless it and uh, just take care of each person here in the week ahead and uh, bless them and the way that only you can, because you are a great and wondrous God. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, we get the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, what I'm going to do today, if everybody will just wait, I'm going to take this back to Arlena and make sure that she's uh, served, and then I'll call you up. But... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes these magnificent words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, and he would have given thanks in this manner, he would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. Blessed art thou, thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Think of the veil being torn. Think of the body that was broken for us. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth, or creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Mother's Day, so I'm going to ask my mom to come up first today, and everybody else follow along. <laughs> She's first anyway, so. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Help him. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I say a special prayer for our mothers today. And uh, we would ask that you would bless each one of them, take care of them, and uh, just we thank you for them. And also I want to say a prayer for my father and Anne, who are going to be leaving. This is uh, their last Sunday here, and that they'll have a good summer, a blessed summer, and that they'll be safe and secure and come back to us safely in about six months. And uh, Lord, thank you for each person here. Once again, please look on all the afflictions that are noted in this teeny little church and help each person that is try struggling through trials or tribulations or physical afflictions and be with them. And also all of those that are also streaming online or on YouTube that have troubles comfort their hearts and strengthen their bones. And we love you, we exalt you, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Amen.